Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Karun Demersian and Rachel Bade about their recent book, Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. This is part one of my two-part conversation with them. Karun is a New York Times congressional correspondent in the Washington Bureau. Previously, she was a longtime national security reporter for the Washington Post, where she covered intelligence, defense, and foreign policy issues. Karun was a member of the Washington Post teams that won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018 and 2022. She also serves as a political analyst for CNN. Rachel is Politico's senior Washington correspondent and co-author of Playbook. She specializes in stories illuminating the power struggles and personal dynamics animating the Beltway, breaking news on everything from private Capitol Hill negotiations to their inter- and intra-party clashes impacting the legislative process. Rachel also serves as a CNN political analyst and a regular on the Sunday morning TV circuit. Karun, Rachel, welcome to That Said. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So this is part one of our two-part conversation about your wonderful book, Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. And I have to say, of all the books I've read during my three years doing the podcast, this was among the most interesting of them. So thank you for writing this wonderful book. Thank you for the high praise. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So in the beginning of the book, you ask a series of questions. Why had the Democrats pulled certain punches? Did the Republicans really see nothing wrong with Trump's behavior? Was the outcome preordained as everyone seemed to think it was? And how could a president skirt accountability so easily and emerge even stronger? And so what I'd like to do is keep those questions in the back of our minds as we move through the conversation. And when you see the opportunity to explain the thesis that those questions present, let's jump into them. But I'd like to start, instead of with impeachment one, I'd like to start with the Mueller report. Because the Mueller report, in pertinent part, says, quote, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. But based on the facts and applicable legal standards, We are unable to reach that judgment. Accordingly, this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, but it does not exonerate him. It struck me when I read that, that Mueller was inviting Congress to have a look at this, saying, look, I can't indict. I'm governed by OLC opinion, but I can't say that this guy didn't obstruct justice. So here you go, Congress. And I'm going to ask my first question, which was, how was it received? What did Congress do? Or what are the Dems? We're talking mostly the Dems at this point. What did they do when they get this sort of layup? Well, it depends on which Dems you're talking about. Um, if you're talking about the Democrats who are on the Judiciary Committee, led by Jerry Nadler of New York, they read that very line that you just read out, and they said, this is a charging document. This is basically the roadmap that Mueller wants us to follow to impeach the president. 
And, you know, while Nadler wasn't saying that publicly and his rank and file on Democrats on that committee weren't saying that, that's, that's what they were thinking. And that's what they saw as we need to jump on this. But they were at that point a minority, a small minority of the party at large, which was looking at it saying, this is terrible. You know, there's obstruction of justice here, but, um, it's confusing. It's 448 pages of a thick tome. How are we going to message this to the American people? Where's the big gotcha stuff? Half of it's already been out in the press already. This is just so awkward. It doesn't feel like it's something that we can actually like lean all the way in on and say, let's rerun this investigation and see if we can nail the president this time in our forum. And and one of the, the top Democrats who had that sort of latter view of things and, and this sort of latter way of thinking that this was a quote, nothing burger, uh, was Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and she obviously being the leader of the House Democrats at the time, very influential, you know, people don't, don't cross her, at least not if they don't want to get punished, right? And, and, and so, you know, she came out very quickly. We have this scene in the book in one of the early chapters where she has this sort of conference call and she tells people, this is not, we're not going to start impeachment over this. Like some of the rank and file start saying, Hey, shouldn't we do something? And she says, no. And, you know, Jerry Nadler, as Karin just mentioned, um, main character, essential character in the book, especially in part one, two and three, he also confronted Pelosi personally and said that he believes that this is all, but, you know, Mueller, you know, throwing the football to Congress and that they need to catch this and run with it. But the big difference here was that if you look at what happened with Ken Starr, Ken Starr's report um, in the, the Clinton times when Clinton was impeached, that report mentioned impeachment over and over again. And I think one of the big things that Pelosi was frustrated about was there was no real mention of you should impeach. Like he there was no specific line in there that she could point to for the public and say, look, this, you know, former FBI director who is, you know, praised by both sides of the aisle is saying Congress needs to impeach this guy over this action. He specifically sort of teed it up and sort of hinted at it. And now there was certainly taking that hint and running with it. But he never said those words explicitly. And because of that, Pelosi felt she did not have the political cover to begin impeachment. And that's where the book really takes off, talking about this big split in the Democratic Party and how they see this issue. That's right. So you had sort of the pro-impeachment group, which was Nadler and the Judiciary Committee. But then you had these, what you call the, or what maybe they called themselves, the four musketeers of Raskin, Cicilline, Ted Lieu, and Neguse on the one hand, so like driving toward this. But interestingly, besides Pelosi and her leadership, Clyburn and Jeffries, and even Schiff, you had the Spanberger newly elected intelligence military folks that the flippers of red to blue. And so tell us about Pelosi's political calculation around impeachment. Not only do we not have a direct line from Mueller that says impeach, but we now have a majority, a newly gained majority in the House with Spanberger and the intelligence community military folks uh, I guess, critical to that majority. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of the people that had just come to Congress, the new Democrats in the House that year, as you pointed out, you know, like Spanberger, did have a national security background and and the sort of resume that you'd think maybe would be, you know, more swayed by that sort of language in Mueller's report. But 
the Democrats won the House and took the majority that year by flipping, what was it, about 40 different seats? Yes. And and that was done in places where they won on razor-thin margins in districts, in many cases, that Trump had carried in 2016 in his presidential bid. They were not locks. And remember, everybody in the House of Representatives has to rerun for their seats every two years. So anything you do is fair game for your opponents to bring up on the campaign trail. And those, you know, to protect the majority, they had to protect those seats. And Pelosi was always acutely aware of that. That's not that unique for the leader of a party to be acutely aware of where your swing district representatives are. But she was to a degree where she that became the be all and end all of what her focus was, Um, even as this information was coming in about things that Trump did, even as there was potential evidence to seize and run with there. Her prime concern was, can I have these people explain this to voters who backed Trump and still win? And if I think the answer is no, I'm not going to even start to go there because it puts them in such an awkward spot that I'm going to make their life a million times more difficult. And, And Pelosi also fundamentally did believe as much as she personally has a background serving on the Intelligence Committee and overseeing various other, you know, State Department type programs through appropriations role, She's a very good counter of seats, and she's a very, uh, you know, her political code is basically that those aren't the issues that win you elections. The issues that win you elections are the bread and butter issues that affect pocketbook issues, and that's really what she wanted to focus her party's new majority messaging on. Yeah, I think just to add a little footnote there on Pelosi, who's obviously a huge uh, character throughout this entire book, I don't think you can overstate how much her fear of impeachment really affected every sort of decision she made on investigative matters and House oversight matters during this really critical period. I mean, she has this sort of public image of being this anti-Trump figure, this Trump foil who's always standing up to him. But when it came to oversight, she very much, you know, and we'll talk more about this throughout as we go through the book, you know, she was concerned about overreach and that voters who had brought these Democrats, Karn was just talking about, to Washington from Trump districts that actually gave them the majority, if they overstep and go too hard after Trump, that it would blow back on these guys and distract from all these other bills they were trying to pass on, like health care, prescription drugs, et cetera. And so at every almost critical point in this book, you see that fear always winning out, the political concern always weighing out over sort of the fact finding. And so in this critical period where we're talking about right after Mueller, you know, the Mueller report comes out, some Democrats, as we mentioned, really wanted to use that to to begin these an impeachment inquiry. And then Pelosi was concerned about that. And she was hearing from this group of members you were asking about, this group of, they were sort of national security members who, former CIA agents, FBI analysts, people who served in the military. I think a few of them even had Purple Hearts. And they were all from these districts that Pelosi was trying to protect. And they said to her, look, impeachment is a non-starter with my voters. We can't go there. And these are the people she was, you know, very much listening to uh, and was worried about and interested in protecting. And one other note, just to hop on what Rachel's talking about with the Nancy Pelosi's fear. Remember, she kind of came of age, so to speak, like she started to enter the really um, power broker leadership circles, of the Democratic Party, when Clinton's impeachment was happening. And that was like the, the example that she had in her head of the blowback was severe. If you don't do it right, it can actually be a boomerang. And so that was a, you know, that was part of what was helping form her mindset about that. Yeah. However, you write that 
Under the leadership of a cautious speaker, the Democrats hesitated when they could have acted decisively following Mueller's conclusion that Trump had effectively obstructed justice and may even have lied to investigators by repeatedly answering Mueller's questions with, I don't recall. Uh So her hesitancy, I mean, one of the things you say that we discovered that political calculations, not fact-finding, dominated every key decision in the Democrats' impeachment strategy. So was this the first time as you started working through the book that we see political calculation trumping, no pun intended, trumping fact-finding? Yeah, I think we've got a really good example in the book. Uh, This is definitely where you start to see that theme play out right away. Pelosi, we learned through our reporting, right after the Mueller report came out, there was a bunch of um, redacted information that was part of the Mueller report that the Justice Department would not give over to Congress. Notes from interviews, uh, other sort of notes from investigators that they didn't want to have, you know, out in the public sphere at that time. And at one point, Jerry Nadler finally gets Attorney General Bill Barr to give him this information on threat that if he doesn't, they will hold him in contempt and take him to court. And so they share these documents with the Judiciary Committee, and Pelosi goes down to read them herself. And that's where she reads for the first time that Mueller's investigators actually thought Trump had perjured himself. And that was something we didn't know. The public did not know at the time. It wouldn't come out for months. I think it actually came out right around the time they would actually impeach him for the first time in December of 2019. But Pelosi sees early on that it's not just these 10 instances where investigators say Trump may have obstructed justice or potentially obstructed justice. But there's also this other piece of information about perjury, which, as you know, is a crime and, you know, suggesting the president perjured himself. And despite that, you know, she asks a lawyer in the room, we have this nugget in the book, and the judiciary lawyer she turns to said, she says, is this impeachable? And he says, this is absolutely impeachable. She doesn't disagree, uh, but she continues to try that whole summer and the weeks after she learned this privately to still try to, to, to tamp down the impeachment sort of fires starting to spread in her caucus. Like she's still advising members not to go there, saying publicly that they don't have enough information. And she sort of starts to slow roll the investigative process that Jerry Nadler is trying to move quickly. Um, he sort of was concerned that they would get in these legal fights with Donald Trump trying to get information and that their subpoenas would be ignored. Of course, he was right. And so he was worried about this all dragging through the courts, and he wanted to move very quickly to sort of start those court fights so they could get the evidence they needed in these investigations. But Pelosi was concerned about her frontliners and didn't want to move too quickly. We had people tell us, I know that uh, some of the judiciary folks working for Nadler were so frustrated that they likened this to like trying to, to, to pull your own arm off basically, or something like that, like that Pelosi would never allow them to, to move as quickly as they wanted to. And it was all because of these political concerns. So Mueller, as an impeachment opportunity, dies, dies this death because of fears that you can't explain it and fears that the American public just have been there and done that already with Mueller. And you can't resuscitate that now. So it ends and, you know, we're going about our daily business on the Hill And then there's a phone call 
on uh, July the 25th between President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky. So before we turn to the contents of that call, Karun, I can start with you because you're the national security expert on this call. So can you give us just a little bit of background on the Ukraine aid freeze discussion? Because that sort of is the predicate for what happens in impeachment one. Sure. So Congress had been sending um, not bags of money, but had been sending basically military assistance packages to Ukraine since I believe it started in 2015. The Ukraine, uh, the seizure of Crimea had happened in 2014 when Russia basically annexed it de facto. And then a very hot war had been playing out between Ukraine and Russia. That was the basically the opening chapter of what we're seeing raging today. But that program of the United States supplying military assistance to Ukraine to continue to fight off uh, Russian-backed separatists in the eastern part of the country had been going on for a few years, really without any significant objection to it at all on Capitol Hill. It was a bipartisanly popular thing to do. Trump comes in and has this phone, basically, um, <laughs> I don't know how deep back we should go into all the different lobbying campaigns that were happening with various kind of uh, Ukraine former prosecutors general that didn't have very good reputations that had corruption problems. The end of the game ends up being that Trump in a phone call with the Ukrainian president says that he would like him to do us a favor and help him with the investigation of the Bidens. There is this conspiracy theory out there called the crowd strike theory. It's not going to make very much sense when I try to explain it. But basically, <laughs> it was that somehow the hard drive containing Hillary Clinton's emails, this goes back to the pre-2016 election, of course, had ended up kicking around Ukraine. And it was, it was, it's not even worth going into the contorted nature of it, but it had wormed its way into the president's mind. He decides that he needs to create some sort of a, a leverage situation to make the Ukrainians help him to come up with some sort of, if not evidence, you know, to investigate the matter himself, because that'll position him well vis-a-vis Biden potentially down the line. And as part of all of this, as this, all of this is happening, there's an order given down from the White House of freeze that military assistance in its tracks, a.k.a. Congress has already greenlighted to go out the door, but it hasn't gone out the door yet. Stop it before it can happen as it's going to the administration. It takes Capitol Hill a little time to figure out this is going on. And when they do, they are kind of, they're very, very perplexed. Many people at their wit's end, Democrats and Republicans, even Lindsey Graham is super upset about this. And it ends up being this moment of chaos of like, why is this thing possibly happening? Which we all agree is good. We're helping an underdog ally fight off the Russians. What's going on here? And this is the point at which we start to hear about, you know, the whistleblower report based on things that had been said on that phone call between Trump and Zelensky about him wanting him Zelensky to start the investigation of the Bidens, it becomes this whole thing of, did the president actually just withhold military assistance to further our national security ends in order to get a foreign leader to start an investigation of a political rival? And that becomes the rallying cry for Democrats and the thing that they decide is dangerous enough to Republicans because Republicans are upset about the action too, that maybe it'll work. So Rachel, I want to ask you this question. That was great, Karun. And no, I, 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 no, I, no, I can't no. explain some of these theories. Well, just bear with me though, because <laughs> you guys write in sort of response to that answer, 
that Pelosi believed, quote, to understand what Trump did, which was to ask Ukraine for a favor to investigate the Bidens and look for the Hillary Clinton server. To understand what Trump did would require the public to develop a working knowledge of foreign assistance, diplomatic leverage, and the history of the former USSR Republic's efforts to break away from Moscow. She said, no one is going to understand that, which is why I wanted you to explain as best you could what happened, because I think it (laughs) proves the point that you just wrote, that no one would understand this. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a tagline, that's for sure. Yeah, and, but the irony of the whole thing, you know, we sit here talking about right now how complicated this narrative was going to be. The funny thing is, Pelosi had convinced herself and her fellow leaders that this was the one thing that perhaps they could get the public to understand. It's really ironic because before the Ukraine narrative came out, there was all these things that, you know, the House Democrats were looking at. We talked about the Mueller investigation We should also mention, you know, there was talk about Trump profiting off the overall office, misusing pardons to give people pardons to do things that they were not supposed to do legally. The hush payments uh, in the 2016 campaign, uh, clearances for his family members that was suspect as well. And so Pelosi, when this Ukraine narrative starts to break, when the news starts to come out about this whistleblower and that Trump might have leveraged taxpayer dollars, She makes this like key decision and she says, we're going to forget every other scandal that is out there right now. Scandals that, mind you, you and I might say are much more easier to follow, uh, than this Ukraine narrative. And she says, we're going to, we're going to ignore those. We're going to only focus on Ukraine. And because of that, it'll be much more understandable for the public why we need to impeach this guy. It'll be a simple narrative and we'll be able to convince people that what we're doing is right. And we can protect those Democrats in frontline districts from blowback because this is the simplest narrative. So how wrong was she about that? Quite wrong, <laughs> as we will we'll talk about once we get to the end of impeachment and where the polling was at that point. But the thing that's interesting about it is I remember from the Clinton impeachment and the Nixon impeachment that there was a very simple PR sort of message sex in the Oval Office, lie in the grand jury, burglarize a DNC. Here you've got, do us a favor, though. And that's sort of the heart of the conversation between Trump and Zelensky. We've been good to you, so do us a favor, though, without an explicit quid pro quo in the call. And so, You write that it creates an opening for Republicans who may be outraged by this, but still are loyal to party over country. And what surprises me is that it seemed that Mueller was such a more simple story to tell. And here you have Pelosi maybe buckling to the pressures from the progressives to say that this was an easily explained explicit quid pro quo. You don't get military aid unless you do me a political favor. Tell us about that calculation, or I think perhaps as you described in the book, miscalculation. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, I mean, uh, you have to remember there's like overlapping things happening here, right? The Ukraine revelations are coming out at just about the same time as the critical mass is building within the House Democratic ranks to actually 
really the organized mutiny that started with just the four musketeers has ballooned out to a vast majority of the House Democratic um, caucus at that point. And what that means is that Pelosi's in a situation where she knows that the dam might break for anything. And also her frontliners know that the dam might break for anything. Adam Schiff is basically hinting to her this whole time, Nancy, we might be getting close to this point, you know, like this, everything around her is basically closing and closing and closing and closing in. There's a scene in the book where basically we have um, a liberal activist named Reggie Hubbard who goes to Nancy Pelosi's political director in the summer and says, you know, my people, the progressives want to attack her. I'm going to hold them back, but I need to know like a number. What's the number of Democrats we have to hit for you to change, for her to change her mind? And at that point, you know, it's earlier in the year. And so they say 150, but you actually pretty much get there by September with that many people on board. And so at that juncture, it's like, okay, is she just going to say, I don't, care what everybody says. I'm, I, I, if I'm the last person standing, I won't impeach. She actually did say that at one point, but that's mm-hmm. not a very realistic position to take if you're the leader of a body of people. And so the Ukraine stuff comes along at the right time under the purview and the jurisdiction of the right guy. Adam Schiff was already looking into those Ukraine issues because the Ukrainians actually put out a readout of that call with President Biden back in July that nobody paid attention to. But the intelligence committee people were paying attention to what was going on in Ukraine. So he was already looking into the issue. He's much closer relationship with Nancy Pelosi than Jerry Nadler, and he's much more loyal about that. And so Pelosi sees basically a situation where, okay, I'm going to have to move on impeachment sooner or later, probably sooner. At least this is the case where I can put the football in the hands of the quarterback that I trust the most. I guess this is what we are going to be going with, and let's do the best and most focused argument that we can. But as you keep pointing out correctly, it's not, you you cannot boil it down to just one thing. And even if you could boil it down to the quid pro quo, you know, it doesn't take very long for Republicans to start shrugging at the idea of a quid pro quo. Not that big a deal. Happens all the time. That's not enough for an impeachment. Yeah, I just want to add very quickly, like, I totally agree with Karin in that, like, it was all these other factors more so than the quid pro quo that that made Pelosi make this decision. I mean, we show in the book right at almost the exact time the Ukraine stuff was starting to to blow up in the headlines uh, was when they started to hit that 150 lawmaker threshold that she was just talking about. It was like the timing was uncanny. And, you know, we write in the book about how, a lot of progressives don't like to criticize Pelosi outright. And a lot of them had held back doing this, even though they believed they should have started an impeachment of Trump much earlier in the year. They would never criticize her by name. And that weekend, when the Ukraine narrative starts to come out, these members are warning her that and going public, saying that the scandal here is not Trump in Ukraine. The scandal is the House Democrats being unwilling to actually stand up to him. And so you're starting to see this pressure just reach a boiling point. And that, more than anything, we show in the book, forced Pelosi's hand. In fact, she knew about the whistleblower way before it became public because Adam Schiff had told her about it privately. And that did not change her mind. The thing that changed her mind was the public pressure. And again, this notion that since she's going to have to go ahead, it's going to fall right into Adam Schiff's territory. And that is a man she trusts to lead the, the Democratic impeachment. So let's just be clear for our listening audience. There is this phone call. There is the readout of it. There is the just do me a favor, though. It's not really gaining a lot of traction. Then they learn that there was a whistleblower who could relate to 
the public, the once it was released, the true quid pro quo like nature of that call. And that whistleblower complaint, which is going to sort of illuminate how much closer to a direct quid pro quo that phone call was, triggers an op-ed by Spanberger and the national security freshman. Remember, Spanberger is the one who they're trying to protect, and that's why Mueller is dead on the water. Now, with this whistleblower complaint, tell us about this op-ed and the sort of pivot point that that created. Uh, yeah, so these are the members that we talked about at the beginning. Pelosi, they have Pelosi's ear more than pretty much other rank and file in the House. These are the ones she wants to protect. She's worried about them losing their seats. When the Ukraine news starts to pop, these members go and find Adam Schiff and say, is this the thing that is going to change Pelosi's mind on impeachment? And Adam Schiff, they had asked this question before we show in the book, and he had always told them, you know, no, Mueller's not going to, Pelosi's not going to impeach over Mueller. You don't have to worry. We're not doing this. Well, for the first time, they get a, a different answer. And that answer is that this might actually change the calculus on impeachment for Pelosi, which is interesting because at the time, Pelosi was very much still fighting back. Uh, but Schiff tells these group of frontliners that, you know, this might be the thing that Pelosi can't hold back anymore. And so they decide that they do not want to be seen as puppets of Pelosi, that that is a worse look for them back home. And so they decide they're going to get ahead of her. And they start talking on the weekend how to do this. How do we sort of support impeachment? They decide to come up with a public op-ed to explain why they're doing this 180, where they had always been opposed to impeachment. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to say, Ukraine is the thing that we think we should impeach over. We are, you know, military veterans, et cetera. It is our job to think about, you know, what is right before we think about politics. And therefore, we're following our hearts and we're going to do this no matter the political consequences. Well, really... Privately, we show in the book, they were 100% thinking about the political consequences. They were worried that Pelosi was going to do this, and then they were going to get strung out from it. Uh, so they wanted to beat her uh, to make it look like they were the leaders in all of this. And that's what they did. And then when Pelosi found out about the op-ed from Adam Schiff, mind you, this is another thing that is putting pressure on her. She's realizing that if she's losing her frontline members that she's been trying to protect this whole time, and they change their mind, she has nothing to sort of point to to say we can't do this because all of a sudden these members are backing impeachment. She's backed into a corner. And so she essentially greenlights the beginning of an inquiry under the Intelligence Committee. That's what the Spanberger group says to her. Look, we don't trust Jerry Nadler, the head of Judiciary Committee, where these things normally go. Can you please let Adam Schiff run this? And that creates big problems, I think, as we go down the line because of the way Schiff conducted his business. So can you talk a little bit about Schiff and uh, in the skiff part one of his investigation and the public part of it and how the Republicans were able to use that process to their advantage and to the disadvantage of probable bipartisan uh, look at this stuff. So it's interesting because this period of the impeachment, the, the, the investigative phase, right, 
It's the first time Capitol Hill has ever taken something like this on. In the Clinton impeachment, there was the Star Report. That's where all the investigative work happened, right? In the Nixon impeachment, there was the Jaworski Report. That's where all the investigative work happened. And that stuff happens, you know, behind a curtain. You don't get to see what's going on. It's very secretive and all that. And all those things that go into actually making an indictment and bring something to a grand jury, if you were talking about in the court process. You try to do that on Capitol Hill, it's a fundamental mismatch with the space. Adam Schiff basically told himself, I am doing the equivalent of what Jaworski did. I'm doing the equivalent of what Ken Starr did. And no Republican on the Hill accepted that explanation because they were just saying, this is an impeachment. You're doing things. You're interviewing witnesses. You're not giving us the transcripts. We're not able to see what's going on. They accused him of leaking. That became a, uh, a regular refrain. Every time something got too awkward for the Republicans, they would accuse uh, Schiff and other Democrats of cherry picking and, and leaking things, which, you know, Schiff himself was not really doing. Um, and the whole climate of it becomes super politically charged because it's not just that the, the construct of what Schiff was doing was anathema to a, a, a forum like Congress, which is inherently political where people want to see it's a high profile thing going on. But you have to also remember who Adam Schiff was at that time. Uh-huh. Even though he was Nancy Pelosi's favorite, even though he was the favored, trusted leader of the frontline Democrats she cared about the most, he was already well established by that point as the, the boogeyman for the GOP. Like, I mean, he had become the Trump foil on television when the Democrats were in the minority for the first two years of the Trump administration. So often, I mean, it was almost a joke around Capitol Hill about, you know, how many shows would Adam Schiff be doing this weekend on the Sunday circuit, right? Because he was always out there delivering the messages because he was good at delivering the anti-Trump message. But he then, when he steps into this role of supposedly neutral arbiter of, or, you know, you know, non-political, obviously everything's political on the Hill, but stepping into this role where you have to kind of have the trust of people that you're doing it right, especially if you're doing it behind closed doors, And he doesn't. There's absolutely no goodwill that the GOP wants to expend to him because he is literally the lightning rod for all of their fervor at Democrats for unfairly attacking Trump. Deserved or undeserved, that's who he is in their eyes. And unlike in previous impeachments, Pelosi is kind of blind to this. She does not decide to pick somebody who's a little bit more of a centrist, who's a little bit more of at least having a reputation of being, you know, having Republican friends around and and not having been literally the face of the party for messaging against Trump this whole time. So that makes the Republican argument of this goose was cooked before we even put it in the oven that much more easy to argue. And Rachel, you're right that the, while Pelosi may have appeased the national security freshmen by acquiescing to this has to be Schiff if you want us to come along, by doing so she most likely hamstrung the investigation from the inception. Yeah, there, I mean, just as Karin laid out there, Republicans and Schiff, oil and water. I mean, like he was, even before this, he was Republicans, probably number one punching bag. And if you take that and you compare it to what happened with Watergate, I mean, one of the reasons why the investigations and the hearings in the House during Watergate were so successful, and even the Senate hearings when they had uh, Senate hearings before the impeachment had officially started against Nixon, was because those leaders that were chosen to have these hearings and to make this case to the public were seen as not being, you know, hardcore liberal at the time. Uh, they were seen as sort of 
being trusted by both parties. Peter Rodino, uh, who chaired the House Judiciary Committee at the time during Nixon, he actually fired his own staff that were Democrats, like Democratic lawyers, and hired Republican lawyers. He actually wrote the rules of the road with Republicans on that committee. And if you look into our book, we show a number of examples where there are moderate Republicans, people like Jamie Herrera Butler, who is from Republican from Washington State, who wanted to talk to Democrats about how to do this. They thought, you know, what they were seeing with Trump and Ukraine was really terrible and like it should be investigated. But when it came to the process and the person running it, she was very turned off by it. She was turned off not only by uh, Schiff, but also the fact that this was being conducted in a closed door setting where she was not allowed to see the evidence. Republicans were basically arguing that, you know, even though Republicans had done something like this in the past, I mean, Trey Gowdy ran his Benghazi committee like this several years before this impeachment. He was a Republican. But they said since it was impeachment and they were going to have to start voting on the rules of a road for impeachment, they deserved as members of Congress to have some sort of access to what was going on, these, this information that was going on behind closed doors. And they rallied behind that. Republican leaders were able to use that process and Adam Schiff, the fact that nobody trusted him on the Republican side, not even moderate Republicans trusted him. And they were able to turn and whip their party against this whole impeachment measure. And Scroon, one of the things that you talk about in this critical period is the essential due process fight between Nadler and Schiff. And so can you talk that out? Because I think that was, again, to one of your points, you say that while the Democrats said they wanted bipartisanship, when presented with ways to achieve it, they chose paths that guaranteed the opposite. One of the big failings that you point out in the impeachment one process here. So talk us through the Nadler shift due process fight that was unfolding, please. Okay. So in October of 2019, at the very end of the month is when they ended up voting on the rules package, but there was a lot of push of like, okay, if we're doing impeachment now, because it was started so weirdly, Nancy Pelosi basically came out on September 25th, I think, or 24th, and said, we are continuing to look into investigations. And this was kind of this weird, soft, amorphous, squishy way of saying, and it's not exactly a ribbon cutting in the start of a parade, we're going to impeach the president, right? It was squishy, it was odd, it was because there was all kinds of things tied up with the uh, court filings that Jerry Nadler had made previously, in which he had insinuated that Congress might be looking into impeachment in order to get uh, build pressure for DOJ to cough up various materials that, that that they weren't handing over to Congress, which Rachel referenced before. But can I just stop you one second? Just yeah. again, for the listening audience, when you are subpoenaing materials in the context of an impeachment, you get greater deference in the courts because it's under the umbrella of impeachment. If it's just congressional right. oversight, less so. So I'm sorry. Go. That's a very important point. No, I'm glad that you you, you interjected that because that is literally what Nadler thought of is something he called the zenith power of Congress, and that he wanted to tap into that. And so, as all of this political jockeying was going on for the first three quarters of 2019, there was legal jockeying going on too of Nadler trying to insert the idea of we could impeach into every court filing and getting pushback from Pelosi, but finding ways to sneak it in. Anyway, so. We get to the point where we're talking about, you know, 
what is the process going to have to look like? They have to put in rules of the road um, because impeachment investigation is underway. Pelosi has said, basically, I want to do this before the end of the year because I don't want to be talking about impeachment in 2020 when there's going to be a presidential election and my people have to run for office again. This is her timeline that she's constructed. So there's a lot of pressure to, to set up what they're going to do. Now, remember, there is this overarching political rivalry, but also favoritism going on where Pelosi feels like Schiff is better in front of a camera, better on the dais, and she wants his committee to be the one to actually interview all the witnesses and doesn't want to give Nadler the same sort of airtime to re-interview all the witnesses, you know, when the Judiciary Committee eventually inherits the impeachment. This is a problem because Jerry Nadler is a real institutionalist. And he's basically saying, like, look, no matter what we're arguing here, the accused has a right to represent themselves before, like, we cast the final verdict of whether or not they're impeached. And so I think that there should be, you know, due process rights for the minority to call in witnesses. I think that the president should have the opportunity, at least, to avail himself of a chance to stand and face these charges or at least do so through a counsel. And I really think that these are necessary things. Pelosi and Schiff, meanwhile, are saying, are you crazy? Why would we give people, why would we give Republicans, and why on earth would we give Donald Trump a forum to grandstand in like that. Why would we do that? That doesn't make any sense. We know we're never going to get any GOP for support for this at the end anyway. Why would we just shiv ourselves in that way? It doesn't work. And what that ends up becoming an issue with between Nadler and Schiff is that Nadler had had the opportunity to interview witnesses. He could have done it however he wanted to, but he's basically looking at this and saying, this is unconstitutional. The whole premise of the country is that, you know, you're supposed to, I mean, not the whole premise of the whole country, but like a very fundamental tenet of how the judicial process is supposed to work is that you do have these rights for the accused at least, right? And that there is this due process consideration, which he's looking at Schiff, Schiff saying, I don't have to do it because I'm just running an investigation here. The impeachment rules of the road don't apply to me. And Nadler saying, but if I don't ever get a chance to do anything in my committee, I'll never have a chance to make the due process stuff right. And so it comes to this head two days before Halloween where they have a fight in Schiff's offices and they're yelling at each other about this. And Democrat on Democrat, one calling the other unconstitutional. And they, they eventually kind of work out a way to massage it, to make it go away. But it, it never fully does because the GOP you know, continues to build more and more momentum to arguing that this isn't fair. And the fact that, you know, we show in the book that there's even Democrats who thought the way we're going about this just isn't fair is a kind of damning indictment about the way that they were trying to make all of this more expedient um, than kind of dotting every I and crossing every T and doing it the fully correct way. And and we show, just to add real quickly, we show in the book in real time how after Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff have this yelling match about whether or not to give Trump due process and they come up with this way to sort of give him it, but not really. And, and so it's not it's not as clean cut as uh, Nadler wanted it to be in terms of giving Trump due process. We show in real time how Republican leaders, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, take the exact wording of what was negotiated on due process and show it to their moderate Republicans who are on the fence about how to vote on these beginning an impeachment inquiry. And they actually use that to whip them in line. So even though, you know, Schiff and Pelosi at the time were concerned about giving Trump due process because, you know, why do that? It'll just give them a chance to grandstand. We're not going to get any Republicans anyway. This is where, you know, 
we show in the book that it wasn't as preordained as everyone thought. There were Republicans who were concerned about what Trump was doing. And had things gone another way, who knows what we would have seen? I mean, who knows? But this is a good example of where Democrats just sort of pushed through on their own how they wanted to do it. And because of that, they very much lost potential Republican support. You write that the way Schiff and Nadler compromised, which to me as a lawyer is stunning as a lack of due process, they said that Trump would have rights before the Judiciary Committee contingent upon his cooperating with Schiff's closed-door intelligence committee. So they're making contingent due process, fundamental due process, with cooperating with an intelligence committee closed door hearing. And you write of it. even more shocking if you consider that one of the things they were going to impeach him on was obstruction of Congress. Like, I mean, it's, it, that, that's like deciding it's done before it's actually even been adjudicated. So, Well, that's right. And to that point, it's very hard to understand how you can obstruct a Congress that doesn't let you, you know, have rights to, to cooperate with it. But you write that, again, in why this was a botched impeachment was, you write, ignoring the Republicans' counter-argument on due process and process rights generally being contingent upon cooperation was a gross miscalculation. That was perhaps, of all the botched stuff, giving the Republicans the same narrative that Ken Starr sort of gave Clinton, which is, it's not the substance, it's the process that we're objecting to. And that becomes sort of the mantra of the Republicans. And it's an easy sort of PR message for the public to grasp. Oh, if they're not giving us rights, this has to be, you know, kangaroo-like in its judicial process. Yeah. I mean, which is like we were talking about earlier, that's a very pithy argument to make that a lot of people will understand a hell of a lot easier to make than the full explanation of the, you know, web of the Ukraine narrative. Um, But I would just say one more thing, which is that, you know, due process, yeah, it became a political football that was kicked in various ways around various parts of the impeachment saga. But it also goes to the other botched argument that we were making, not to kind of presage the moral of the story. But since you raised that, you know, you can decide whether or not impeachment is botched by it's not exclusively about whether it succeeds in convicting the person that is accused. Right. It's also about how you leave the tool of impeachment itself, right? If you cut corners around various due process things, if you speed through different things, if you do things for politically expedient reasons, not necessarily because you're trying to just do things by the book, you know, there's no rules of the road for how Congress is supposed to impeach. The Constitution just gives them the power to impeach. It's completely based on the precedent that's set, right? Um, Nixon precedent, kind of the gold standard during Watergate. But you can botch impeachment. Like, think about it as a, as a knife, right? You know, like, is it sharp? The next time you wield it, is it going to be dulled because you actually did cut all these due process corners? So while that's not like the political discourse around what was happening, you know, with the 30,000 feet, like rear view mirror that we were doing in the book, we kind of had both things in mind there as we're talking about, you know, these, these grievous errors. It's both for the outcome of that particular impeachment, but it's also for the health of impeachment writ large. So let's turn to the public hearing. So we finally get an agreement to go forward. We don't yet, though, I don't think, remind me of the timeline, we do not have a full vote of the House as all this is 
starting, right? One of the big complaints of the Republicans is that in order for there to be an impeachment process, you need a full vote of the House. And and White House counsel is using that as a basis to not cooperate with the committee in any way, saying it's it's essentially it's an unconstitutional committee. Well, that was the argument through October uh, of that year while they were doing all these interviews behind closed doors with witnesses. But then they did have the vote on Halloween just to get one reason to just get rid of that talking point. I think a lot of Democrats were concerned about that talking point. And then they began the public hearings about two weeks later, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So by the time the public hearings come out, you know, they've already had that test vote. And what they were Republicans were able to keep every single Republican in line which created a whole bunch of momentum and sort of swung things in the Republicans' direction after that point. Like, they started to feel like, okay, we got this, we can fight this, that the public is hearing our talking points about this being an unfair process. You can see in the polling that impeachment has started to sort of level out in terms of support around like 50%, maybe a little lower. And so Republicans are starting to gain steam at this time. And you write that Nadler, watching all this and being given only two weeks to conduct the hearings. It took 51 days of hearings in Watergate, 250 hours of hearings, and Pelosi gives Nadler two weeks to do this. And he's just watching it, you write. Uh, Schiff, gives Schiff. Gives Schiff. But Nadler also had a very short. He did. Mm-hmm. Nadler had like two days, three days. Three days, days yeah. yeah <laughs> days, right? Schiff has two weeks. Nadler, because he's less liked by Pelosi, gets a tenth of it, two days. Yes. And you write that Nadler watched all of the most dire predictions that he had made to Pelosi and Schiff come back to haunt them. Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing I like to tell people about this period of this two weeks period of when they were having these public hearings is, you know, Karn and I were in the skiff from dawn until dusk every single day during this period. Outside the skiff, I'm sorry, not in the skiff. <laughs> We're on the hill chasing members, like trying to figure out what's going on, like reading, you know, at this point they started releasing transcripts, reading through the transcripts. And even as reporters who were living and breathing this story, we found it hard to keep up in that two weeks. Like there were times when, you know, that during the weekend, I would have to go back and watch a piece of the hearing that I, I missed because I was writing something if we as reporters who are so plugged into this story were not able to follow everything that was happening in those two weeks, how the hell is the American public going to be able to follow this? I mean, you know, we compare it in the book to the Watergate hearings and how during that point, as you mentioned, they had months and months of investigative hearings. They kept building. They brought in the president's inner circle, drawing closer and closer to the president. You know, until they even had the White House counsel, John Dean, come testify. And each hearing became like must watch television. I mean, if you go back and look at how many Americans actually tuned into the Watergate hearings, they were it was a huge deal. But because Pelosi, because of her fear of impeachment and her worry about political blowback, she wanted this whole thing to be done by Christmas. She had put them on this timeline. And because they had this timeline they didn't have a chance to to sort of have these big hearings and try to go to court to fight to bring in witnesses that could have maybe changed Republicans' minds. People like John Bolton, they had initially talked about subpoenaing him, and then they decided not to because they were concerned it would drag into next year. And so what you were left with were these two weeks of hearings that were very quick, 
they were, if you watched them, you know, the witnesses came across as very credible and very knowledgeable, but they were so far removed from Trump that, you know, people weren't watching them very much. I mean, I think we have in the, the book that folks had watched the Mueller hearing earlier in that summer. More people had watched that hearing than were watching these impeachment hearings. And so people weren't tuning in. Therefore, we're not being convinced. And, you know, Republicans, Democrats never had somebody who was close to Trump say, I heard from Trump's own mouth that he was trying to orchestrate this quid pro quo. They were never able to get somebody to actually put the quid pro quo in Trump's mouth. And so that also, you know, obviously hindered them because there was a person who could have done that. We would find out the following year, John Bolton would write that in his memoir about working at the White House. So, yeah, these hearings, they were supposed to build public support, but instead, you know, they they pretty much did the opposite. It seemed they protected the vulnerable Democrats at the expense of the best case they could put forward. But one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about was there were two articles of impeachment that finally get voted out. One was abuse of power. And that's the do me a favor, though. And the other one is obstruction of Congress, the failure of the Trump White House to cooperate with the Congress in meaningful ways. And I was wondering what you thought about whether or not it was given the fact that they chose not to subpoena anybody, that they didn't really push for this cooperation through the courts as they have a right to, was adding obstruction of Congress a big mistake? Would they have been better off with just one article, abuse of power? Karun, what do you think? I mean, I know I mean, they did it because Trump was being the most uncooperative president with Congress, with the congressional oversight across the board from the moment the Democrats came into power in the House in like, you know, modern history and definitely in recent memory for anybody that was serving, right? And so uh he had a penchant for just, you know, putting a hard, dark curtain down. Nobody's going to go. No, it's not okay for anybody to testify for anything. You're not getting any documents. You're not getting any witnesses, no help whatsoever on any of your investigation. So they had plenty of evidence from like around Congress. that This was his pattern and his penchant, but what they were lacking was two specific things. One, you can't really make the argument that he's dragged us out forever and ever and ever when your whole impeachment process has been going on for less than two months at that point. That's a little bit of an awkward position to take, right? And also, it's hard to say, we tried everything and he still won't do it. As you just pointed out, you don't actually file that subpoena. The reason they pulled some of those subpoenas and didn't file the subpoenas for people like John Bolton in the end is because the courts are slow than they wanted them to be. Even in a situation of impeachment, as you pointed out, Michael, that that accelerates things. It doesn't accelerate things on Nancy Pelosi's timeline, which was to finish by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And so that became the block, right? And it's like, well, if we have a pending case at court, it's going to be really hard for us to argue that he's obstructing Congress before we even get a single opening verdict, not to mention all the various levels of appeals that would have to happen. Even if they're expedited, we're still going to be stuck in court by the time we want to bring this to the Senate and have them vote to cast a verdict one way or the other. And so they make this decision, which is, again, a politically motivated decision. But then this goes back to the point I was making before, excuse me, the politically motivated decision not to throw every punch they have in terms of subpoenas. 
But that goes back to the point I was making before about, you know, what is the health of impeachment at the end? You know, if you do not use the weapons that you have, can you actually claim that, you know, they're in good shape? If you don't throw the punches that are at your disposal, have you actually done everything that you could before accusing the other guy of being to blame? You only have to look at Mitt Romney's vote at the end of the Senate trial, which I know is skipping ahead, to see that, you know, it wasn't a very convincing argument, even for people who were willing to be convinced of Trump's guilt. So I'd like to turn to the pretrial period. And in this pretrial period, McConnell is saying that there's no chance that the Senate would ever convict Trump and remove him from office, that the wish that this would happen would never happen. And what you have here is, I think, something that I find startling, and I wondered what you thought of it. The Constitution mandates that senators take an impeachment oath. And the Senate rules state that, quote, I will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help me God. So they're going to be jurors. But in fact, we see McConnell, Graham, Ted Cruz, they are essentially part of the Trump defense team, which I didn't realize how intimately involved they were. It's not a botched part of the narrative, but it's an interesting sidebar to what you wrote. And if I could ask you to flesh that out, I think the listening audience would find it interesting. Yeah. I mean, they weren't only just a part of Trump's defense, McConnell and these Senate Republicans, they were leading it. And I think one of the really interesting things we found in reporting this book was that McConnell and a lot of Senate Republicans like Ted Cruz, who have these sort of legal uh, backgrounds, Lindsey Graham, uh, they thought that White House counsel Pat Cipollone was totally screwing up the Trump defense. Donald Trump wanted to say there was no quid pro quo. The call was, quote, perfect. And Senate Republicans were convinced that, look, that sort of argument isn't going to resonate with the public. You need to come up with a better legal argument for the Senate trial so that Senate Republicans can vote to acquit Trump, but have some political cover back home so they don't take heat from voters for doing that. And so we show in the book how, you know, even though jurors sort of raise their hand and say they're going to do impartial justice from day one after Nancy Pelosi announced this impeachment inquiry, Mitch McConnell was in touch with the White House telling them what sort of arguments to make, argue about protecting the institution. He kept telling them argue about House Democrats not doing their homework, which, you know, became a huge not to skip too far ahead in this this point of the Trump impeachments, but it would become a huge uh, piece of the argument that would convince Lisa Murkowski uh, to vote to acquit and vote not to hear from witnesses. This notion that House Democrats never did their homework. So why should Senate Republicans go back and do their homework for them? And so, yeah, you very much see from, you know, Pelosi's announcement all the way through the trial when McConnell's own staff were helping write some of the senator's questions. And then they would tell the Trump lawyers how to answer them so that Senate Republicans who are on the fence would hear those answers and say, okay, I'm leaning toward the Trump point of view. So he was very much running the entire thing. And Corinne, this brings up a theme that we've laced through this, which is witnesses. And 
witnesses became a big issue on the House side, but to Rachel's point, it becomes even a bigger issue on the Senate side. The House didn't call these witnesses. They could have called these witnesses. And we, the senators, are just, the quote is, we're not going to do their homework for them. They can't come here with a half-assed case and expect us to do what they should have done. And that plays out significantly. And so if you could talk about the debate about calling witnesses uh, within the Dems and then between the Dems and the Republicans, that would be helpful. Well, you end up with this lovely role reversal that flips right when you start to cross the Capitol from the House to the Senate, which is that suddenly it's the Democrats that are calling for more due process because they are in the minority and they are trying to force a series of votes that basically say we have to subpoena as the Senate John Bolton. We have to subpoena the State Department witnesses and records. We have to subpoena the same from the National Security Council. From the, I mean, basically ticking off all the agencies that were under the scrutiny of the House investigators, but that they made elected either to pull the subpoenas or to not chase them down to court or to not even issue them in the first place. The Democrats in the Senate are now like, no, we have to do it. We can't possibly have a trial until we actually issue all these subpoenas. All the Democrats vote for it. All the Republicans vote against it. This becomes the kickoff for the, the, the fight that you will hear transpiring through the rest of the trial, which is that Republicans being like, okay, now suddenly, you know, Democrats are willing to expend all this capital to call witnesses when it's on our watch and our responsibility. You guys should have completed your task. If you had an unripe impeachment, you just should have spent longer doing your job before you came over here and asked us to clean up for you. And so this fuels what is this sentiment that, you know, they have an incomplete case. As Rachel pointed out earlier, they have no firsthand witnesses. They didn't even bother trying to find those firsthand witnesses. If the firsthand witnesses were going to be so great and, you know, seal the deal, then why didn't they chase after them? And this is not a, a, a situation that we need to be, you know, taking seriously, basically, which creates the incentive and creates the ability for people that are nervous about it, um, nervous about taking a, a vote to acquit Trump gets them a little bit more comfortable with it. I mean, remember, as much as Pelosi is worried about her frontline Democrats, McConnell is to some degree, I mean, there are there are frontline Republicans in the Senate too who have to worry about whether their, their vote is going to come back to haunt them on the campaign trail. And, you know, it becomes this very methodical process of McConnell and a hand-picked group of his legal eagles just creating these arguments to to teach everybody else of like why they don't need to worry about this sort of why, why they don't need to worry about the blowback, why the case is incomplete that the House Democrats brought, why, you know, quid pro quos actually aren't that bad at the end of the day. And it's all part of the doing business of government. And at the end, they get everybody to a position of feeling OK with it, even after revelations from John Bolton's book come out that indicate that he thinks Trump did do things that are wrong. He thinks basically the quid pro quo was real. They managed to squish that out in about 24 hours flat by just being like, they never called him. He's not our witness to call. And also, even if everything he said is true, so what? That doesn't actually prove an impeachment or an impeachable offense. Rachel, I want to ask about Bolton because Perun just artfully described the House investigation, if you're going to analogize it to the prior impeachments where you had Leon Jaworski 
running grand juries and Ken Starr running grand juries, they're not going to refer anything to the House or the Senate for impeachment until they're absolutely 100% done. Here, we didn't have that. Then you get over to the Senate, and we have the same problem of no eyewitness. And the Democrats are struggling about, do we call a witness? Do we not call a witness? Who do we call as a witness? And Karuna's mentioned a couple of times John Bolton. But remind us, during the impeachment, Bolton appears available to the Democrats, but they don't know what to do. They don't really know what to do with him. They don't know whether to trust him. Mm -hmm. And it creates a big issue, which they ultimately pass on, which I think is one of the things that you say, again, botched, missed opportunity. Here's this guy who has this information. So walk us through a little bit. Who was Bolton and what was it that he was offering? He was offering testimony under conditions, but offering. Yeah. And they, yeah. they no. So right around the time when uh, this Ukraine situation was starting to, to pop, John Bolton ended up leaving the White House on not good terms. Trump said he fired him. Bolton said he resigned. And he, he was the chief. national security. He was a national security advisor, right? And we would actually learn during the first impeachment when Democrats in the House were doing these depositions with State Department Department witnesses and other White House officials. They would learn from one of Bolton's top deputies that Bolton knew about this quid pro quo, and he called it a, quote, drug deal uh, that he wanted nothing to do with. Uh, we learned this in, I believe, early, mid-October, pretty early in the impeachment process, that he not only was concerned about it, but he thought it was illegal. And he had his own assistants who, or his own deputies who would end up testifying before Congress uh, go to the top lawyers in the White House and tell them about what was happening, and like in terms of trying to use military aid to get these investigations of the Bidens. And he was really concerned. So Democrats had a chance right there to call him and hear from him firsthand uh, about what he saw, or what he knew. And they hesitated because, as we show in the book, uh, some judiciary Democrats were concerned that he wouldn't actually have the goods. And if they called him and they took the time to slow down impeachment and fight for him in the court, uh, issue a subpoena and fight down their subpoena in the court, um, that he might not have the goods. And then they ended up hurting their case in the long run. They called him the Joker. One of the, one of the people said, you never know who he's going to shoot you or the other guy. And so they, they didn't know what he was going to say. They didn't, other, know gonna, they didn't know whether essentially he was going to sandbag them. Right. right. The bigger reason they chose not to go for him, as Sir Karn uh, talked about earlier in this pod, was the time issue, right? Pelosi wanted this done for political reasons. She was not going to let this drag out into the following year during an election year. And they knew that if they went and fought for Bolton, uh, it could take a while to get uh, a verdict, even while under and inside an impeachment. Obviously, they thought the courts would move quicker, uh, but they never actually tested that theory because they were too afraid uh, that it would take too long. So they pass up on having him uh, come in and, and testify. But then once it goes to the Senate, around that time, John Bolton, his lawyer put out a statement right before the Senate trial saying that he is willing to testify without originally, I should say, originally his lawyer had said, if you subpoena him in the House, we're going to go to a court and make the judge decide who he should obey, the White House 
or Congress because the White House was telling him not to testify. When the trial started, his lawyer changed the tune and said, if you if the Senate subpoenas him, he will testify. And so everybody started talking about John Bolton again. And right in the middle of the trial, the New York Times broke a story about a forthcoming book that John Bolton was writing or had just finished writing at the time, saying that he talked in the book about how he heard Trump from his mouth say he was basically orchestrating the quid pro quo. So he was a firsthand witness to Donald Trump holding up taxpayer money for these investigations of Joe Biden in Ukraine. And when that came out, you know, that that was something that Mitch McConnell was afraid of. I think we report in the book that even before the trial, McConnell's biggest fear about witnesses was exactly that, that John Bolton would have the goods, that he would testify, and that if that happened, he could start losing Senate Republicans. Or, you know, if they didn't vote to acquit Trump, that they would get, you know, blown up back at home and they would lose their seats and he could lose his majority. So he was really scared of John Bolton, which is why he spent the entire trial in the lead up to trial trying to convince his members that you don't need to hear from any witnesses because he was afraid of John Bolton. It was interesting uh, parallels. Pelosi is shortcutting this trial, making political calculations at the expense of the best case because she thinks that in order to retain her majority, this is what she needs to do to protect her frontline swing Democrats and to make sure that they can turn in the election year to the issues that she thinks the American public are more interested in. And when you flip over to the Senate, McConnell is saying the exact same thing. He's saying, I have a tenuous hold on the majority here, and I can't afford to have this trial sort of stretch out with witnesses for fear of what it might imply for my majority. So it exactly proves, I think, the point that you made, which was that political calculations dominated nearly every decision in the impeachment inquiry. But interestingly, sort of on both sides, both Mm -hmm. in the House and in the Senate, so that the Senate was not really interested in getting to the bottom of anything. They wanted to just get out and protect their majorities. Yes? Absolutely. And they wanted, as McConnell, you know, tried to tell the White House over and over again, you know, they stopped denying the quid pro quo because Senate Republicans at one point, Ted Cruz says to the, the White House lawyers, nobody believes you that a quid pro quo didn't happen here. The question here is how do you make the best argument that we can use to justify our vote to acquit the president back home. And all of that came down to the House not doing their homework and this action not being impeachable or rising to the level of impeachment, et cetera. Yeah. And Corinne, one of the interesting conversations during the trial was this is not necessarily a violation of any statute. There was one conversation about whether this amounted to bribery, which would be a statutory crime, or whether this was abuse of power unconnected to a statutory violation. And so you have this whole debate about whether or not you need for impeachment a statute or not. And that, again, is a a hook. Republicans are always looking for any little hook to say, look, if we had witnesses, if there was firsthand knowledge, if there was a statutory offense, if there was due, due process, then we're all with you. But, of course, you didn't have any of those things, so we're very sorry. 
Yeah, like you said, it, it was a hook, basically, to say I mean, the, the idea of a high crime and misdemeanor it does not actually say in the Constitution if we have passed a statute over it. You're right about recalling the bribery episode, but they threw that one in the trash can real early on because there's conflicting definitions of what bribery is in statute versus the meaning in the originalist reading of the Constitution and everything else like that. And, uh, and, and yeah, the high crimes and misdemeanors threshold is ambiguous, but kind of intentionally so. And so, but you're right, Republicans, look, the, the, the idea of fairness, I know we talk about due process being kind of traded back and forth between the parties, depending on which chamber you're in. But the GOP did make a pretty good political maneuvering. They managed to maneuver politically well around the idea of just finding reasons to say this wasn't fair. Whether or not they were actually meant that the process was not fair is another point. But they found ways to message that the process wasn't fair by picking on these things of like, well, it's not a statutory crime. And and basically by getting Trump lawyers to argue things, you know, in various different ways. I mean, Alan Dershowitz made how many different arguments that contradicted previous Alan Dershowitz arguments as well that, you know, went beyond what everybody wanted them to do. It shows you the level of coordination there was as well between the Senate GOP and between the lawyers for the president in, again, just trying to find these unfair enough sounding like things that they could point at and hinge their opposition to by saying, it's their fault. They're doing this the wrong way. It's not a complete case. We're not letting the president like get off with anything serious. It's them who are to blame for for a witch hunt, a half-baked witch hunt, basically. And in fact, in the end, uh, those who might have voted for conviction, uh, Murkowski and Susan Collins, Lamar Alexander, they all found a way not to on process. Only Romney votes to convict on abuse of power. Right. Only Romney votes to convict on just one charge. And yeah, I mean, Rachel pointed out before, like, you know, Murkowski has the screws put to her um, on a really key preliminary vote about witnesses. You know, Collins takes that vote, but then makes the determination that based on what they brought, it's not enough. And so she votes to acquit as well. And so at the end of the day, you end up with, again, what Jerry Nadley predicted would happen, um, which is that it just doesn't work and it falls apart along all these lines of if we give them the holes of, in our process before they've tried to poke holes in them, then, you know, we, we just, we don't have like a line of defense here. We can't, we can't actually do this. So that's, that's what ended up happening. Yeah. I don't think it's interesting because like, you know, Karin and I don't argue in the book that, you know, there could have necessarily been 67 senators, enough Senate Republicans to get Trump convicted and then, you know, from running one. from office. Exactly. But specifically an impeachment one. So yeah. Specifically on impeachment one. Impeachment yeah, two, yeah. a different story, uh, which we'll get to. But we do show that, you know, you could have had more Republicans very much in the Senate as well vote for a conviction. I mean, if you go, we do a deep dive into Lisa Murkowski, really interesting senator from Alaska. She sort of relishes this like moderate role she has, uh, in sort of bucking her own party and her own leadership all the time. We talk about these tensions that, you know, we heard about between McConnell and Murkowski, who, you know, she talks about, she basically likens the entire Re- Republican caucus at the time, conference at the time, to a herd of wild musk oxen who live in Alaska and they sort of like protect their young by forming this circle around them and like, 
facing the outside to keep them yeah, from butts in, their butts in facing out. And she says, whenever someone and whenever Trump's in, in trouble, it's like we got to circle him. We got to circle him. This is what we hear from McConnell over and over again. We got to protect him, protect the herd, protect him. And she she just hates it. She hates she doesn't take the party line. She thought what Trump did was wrong. But she likened what the Democratic the Democrats did with impeachment to a putting a dead cat on uh, the Senate's doorstep. The Pelosi had a dead cat on her doorstep, and so she she didn't want it, and she puts it over in the Senate and says, "You deal with it." Basically, this notion that she didn't want to deal with impeachment, and so she puts it on the Senate's door and says, "You guys make the case because we're not going to do it in the House." And Murkowski, one of the things that made her decide, and we talk about how she didn't decide until the night before this vote on witnesses. And she was very angry about it, angry at both parties, feeling that Trump really needed to be investigated. And there was a real case here, but because of the politics, everybody was guilty. We basically show that one of her final decisions not to do this was because she was afraid in the future, future houses would impeach a president very quickly and then send the articles to the Senate and require the Senate to be held up in impeachment for weeks and months at a time to do all these in the investigation, to interview witnesses. She basically said the House can hijack the Senate if we allow them to get away with this notion of only, you know, building half the case and requiring the Senate to build the full case. And so that was one of the reasons why she voted to acquit Trump. And if you look at it again, analogizing it to a trial, the prosecutors have an obligation to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense has no obligation to present any evidence. They can just say the prosecutor failed to prove its case, and I get a not guilty verdict. And that was sort of what happened here in large measure because of the political calculations that the Democrats make that you outlined so well. As a final question, what's your answer to that? And then we're going to break and return and do part two. So Trump is acquitted. Susan Collins says, well, the process wasn't great, but it taught Trump a big lesson. And you say, though, in answer to that in part, but how could a president who shattered norms so readily skirt accountability so easily and emerge even stronger, which is sort of like the predicate to what impeachment two is going to be all about. So what's your thinking? Well, Susan Collins was very wrong. (laughs) Trump did did not learn his lesson clearly Mm -hmm. um, at all. Um, He, it's very, it's very rare for somebody who is already kind of that sure of their own, you know, rightness to say, oh, phew, I narrowly missed being, you know, being convicted because it wasn't narrow. The whole part, the only person that took a half of a vote against him was a guy he never even actually liked. So frankly, like having been through that process, Trump found that the Republican Party was even more galvanized around him than he initially thought, found there was even a Democrat or two in the House that was willing to side with him, mm-hmm. found that he could get through the hardest fire that you could throw at a president and come out unsinged, basically. And at that point, remember, like as much as, you know, the country was becoming inured to the success of Trump scandals, Trump was skirting accountability for successive scandals, too. That makes you more and more and more and more confident. So it's wishful thinking 
of someone like Susan Collins to say, oh, I think he learned his lesson. That's just a way of being like, you know, I don't want my get my hands dirty about this. Um, and it has it has not borne out to be anything close to true. Yeah. And let's remember that, you know, one of the things we mentioned in the book is that, you know, Trump's Gallup poll numbers were the highest they had ever been the week he was acquitted, um, which tells you, you know, the Democrats were not able to make this case to the public and a lot of independent voters. Yes, they made the case to their own party. Okay, so if you looked at polling, Democrats largely supported impeachment. But if you look at independent voters and certainly Republicans, they hadn't convinced barely anyone. In fact, the polling supporting impeachment, it had peaked a little bit after Pelosi announced impeachment when the Ukraine news was first starting to to break in the fall of 2019. But by February of 2020, right around the time Trump is acquitted, support for impeachment had dipped and Trump was experiencing a little bit of a boost. And so he certainly didn't learn his lesson He feels emboldened through all of this. And we show in the book how right away, like even that week, the shackles on him are just gone. He fires impeachment witnesses. He gets rid of a bunch of watchdogs, like the government government watchdogs, whose entire job is to make sure that, you know, government officials in the executive branch are doing things on a a moral and ethical uh, high ground. He starts to undercut them and fire them because they've, you know, shined a spotlight about something in his administration that he's not doing right or, you know, that some 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 sort of mismanagement or problem uh, or scandal that's going on. And so that just continues to build throughout the summer of 2020 before his his own reelection. And this obviously is is a prelude to what we would actually see after the election with with January 6th. So I think this is a great place to stop part one of our interview. We have an emboldened president who's holding a 94% approval rating among Republicans who has learned a lesson, but not the lesson that Susan Collins wanted, which is essentially he can do whatever he thinks he wants to do and get away with it. So tune in for part two. Thank you guys for part one. And we'll see how this failure of impeachment one really sets the stage for what happens in impeachment too. So thank you very much for coming and see you next time. See you next time. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.